Isn't it good to have Brother Dale back? We uh, appreciate him being here, and uh, as he recovers, keep uh, praying for him. And every time he coughs or anything like that, it makes me hurt. As you can imagine, what is going on here? There we go. And uh, I, I feel for him uh, on all of that. When we uh, just sang the song, Think About His Love, Think About His Goodness, Think About His Grace, It's Brought Us Through, For As High As The Heavens Above, So Great Is The Measure Of Our Father's Love, Great Is The Measure Of Our Father's Love. Now, uh, Wednesday, you've been at work today or doing other things that probably don't take your mind toward that direction, okay? When you're uh, fighting traffic on I-35 and it's stop and go, more stop than go, you probably don't think about the love of God, or, or do you? Am I wrong about that? Maybe I'm telling on myself, right? When the kids aren't uh, doing what they're supposed to do, then, uh, you know, maybe you don't always think about the mercy of God. How about whenever you make a phone call, to uh, uh, maybe you get an email. This happened to me not too long ago. You get an email, okay? Call this number. I think it was for insurance or something like that. And so, uh, you know, with a handy smartphone, hit the link, and uh, there it goes. And it's a wrong number. You know, and that, you know, get, get your stuff right. Don't you want to say that? Except I couldn't get a hold of anybody. And so I went on and Googled it and looked and found another number. And when I finally got in there, I thought, you know, I'm going to tell somebody about this. And you know what happened? Stupid robot. And then they start giving you all those prompts. Don't you love all the prompts? And in fact, I'll tell you this. I really don't have any problem with that. Except for all of those times when the prompts that they give don't match what I'm calling about. You ever have that happen? And you go, well, I don't know. I guess I'll do eight and see what happens. And then you get that person, and if you can understand them, then they say, oh, no, this is not the right department. Let me transfer you. And you're going, no, 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 no. You know, and then uh, it hangs up or something like that happens. Or, uh, you know, sometimes you get somebody else who has no idea about your situation and what you're calling about. And uh, I, I finally, the other day, I said, you're the one that contacted me. I didn't just contact you. You sent me the email telling me I needed to take care of this situation and I needed to do it immediately by dialing this number. It wasn't even the right number. And now you can't figure out who I am or why did you send the email? You ever felt like that? And uh, that's where everybody talks about in this information age, as they used to call it. You know, we've just kind of become a number or series of numbers. It's hard to get a human. It's hard to find anybody, especially in these big corporations or banks or anything, that actually knows anything about what they're doing and how to find it. You know, so many times it's like, do I exist or not? You sure take my money every month. I don't understand why you can't bring up my account. All of these kind of things uh, lead you to sort of wonder what's going on and who am I? Really, who am I? And, uh, you know, uh, man, 
if I didn't send in my payment or my subscription or whatever it might be, I, I don't think it would take them very long to find me and to tell me what the situation was. You ever felt like that? Um, I've noticed with the IRS, if you owe them money, it doesn't take them long to get a hold of you. If you have a refund coming, yeah, you might as well just settle down like Rip Van Winkle and wait for it to come in. Because so many times we feel like in this age in which we live, we don't really matter as much as we probably should. Okay? And so uh, you call, and i uh, tell you another phone prompt story. I called uh, an insurance company I've been with for uh, 35 years, and I entered my code, and the robot called me by name. The robot called me by name, okay? And then when I got to the person, then I had to go through all of that again to tell them who I am and what I was calling about. And I said, didn't you get all that information when I entered all of that before? Uh, no, it doesn't give us that we, we, uh, uh, for privacy purposes or something like that. It's like, okay, so who, how do I get somebody who knows my situation? We have a lot of question about identity and who we are and how we fit in and things have changed uh, an awful lot. Sometimes uh, you think about the days when you would go into a business and as soon as you walked into the store, the little bell on the door would ring. Remember those? And when you walked in, the proprietor would call you by name. Remember those days? And uh, they remembered your last project or your last order. They knew what you were interested in. They knew how to help you and, and how to help you immediately. I think those days are long, long gone, aren't they? And uh, it's just a, a different time. Well, did you know that Jesus had that same type of problem? People would read about him in the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament was around for a long time before Jesus was born. There were prophecies about him that were really, when we look at it, we go, how could it be any more clear than what Isaiah made it? And yet you find that when Jesus is on earth, Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious leaders, what, what did they really get and what did they really understand about Messiah? The Messiah they sang about, the Messiah they prayed for, the Messiah they talked about, and yet there he is right in front of them. Man, they just couldn't see it. Or maybe the problem was some of them could see it and they didn't like what they got. I mean, I understand that to some degree because I've had times when God has answered my prayers and I go, yeah, that wasn't what I was looking for. That wasn't what I was talking about. And so when they saw Jesus, he didn't fit the bill of the Messiah that they wanted. How's this guy going to overthrow the Romans? How's this guy going to restore authority and a kingdom to Israel? Who does he think he is? And how is this going to work? Let's reject him and hold out for maybe a better one. Maybe go for plan B on all of this. And so uh, there were some who just didn't get it. There were some who did and they didn't want it. We will not have this man to be king over us, they said at one point. And uh, so this uh, idea, who is this Messiah? Well, when you go back to Psalm 110, 
where we're going to go tonight. Psalm 110. And we're going to look at that uh, thing we looked at a couple of weeks ago that uh, speaks really to the humanity of Jesus Christ and how he is related to David. And we're going to try to answer the question that you remember uh, we said that this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. We gave you a bunch of scriptures in case uh, you wanted to look those up. And so many times, <coughs> excuse me, I'm trying not to cough. Uh, so many times they would reference this psalm and they would say, David's Lord, who is he? If he's his son, then how is he his Lord? And if he's his Lord, how is he his son? Now, we don't get that because we elect our leaders, we choose our leaders, we do different things like that. But not back in these days. You were born to lead. And, uh, you know, we have this, um, I think, an idea here in modern America that we want our kids to have a better life than we do. I don't, I don't think in the ancient world I don't think they thought quite like that. Now, maybe, maybe they did. You find uh, David wanting to build a temple, and God says no. And so David does collect the material for the temple, so it'll be easier on Solomon. So maybe you had some of that, but uh, not always, not always. In fact, you'll find that in Bible times and ancient times like that, that the greatness kind of flowed back before you. Back before you, not after you, but before you. And uh, what I mean by that is, some of the greatest kings that ever lived, they talk about the glory of their fathers. You ever notice that? And they talk about the glory of the kings who were before them, because they had this weird idea, like if we take Solomon, for example, and Solomon had a a greater kingdom in a lot of ways than David did in terms of territory and money and that kind of thing. And yet Solomon was always obsessed with honoring his father. You know why? Because people back then kind of had the idea, if it wasn't for d dumb old dad, I wouldn't be here. And so everything I have, I owe to him. And so everything I do needs to be for his glory it needs to be because of his work. It needs to be for his honor. And so they would work like that. And that's why in other cultures around the world, you'll find people that actually, as you get older, they give you more reverence. They consider you to have more wisdom. They give you honor. Your physical abilities may have diminished, and you may not be stylish, you may not fit in, you may not relate to this present generation, but they honor you because they have the idea, we wouldn't be here and we wouldn't have what we have if it were not for those old people who came before us. Wouldn't that be kind of refreshing if we thought like that now? That's what it meant to honor your father and your mother, honor those who put you where you are. And so Solomon, for example, would understand that he's kind of like a turtle on a fence post. When you see a turtle on a fence post, there's one thing you know for sure, somebody put him there. Okay? 
And so all of these kings and all of these dynasties would always look ahead. Yeah, they would want to expand their territory and train their son to be the next ruler. And they wanted it to go on and on. But they really looked back to say, I wouldn't be here had it not been for the wars they fought, for the battles that they won. I wouldn't be here had it not been for them giving me a home and raising me and building me up and teaching me and training me and putting me in this position. Okay? So whenever they would read this psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's called a head scratcher. That's a, that's a riddle. That's an enigma. That's one of those things where they would say, now how does this work? Because David would never call his son, even Solomon, or any that came after him, he would never refer to them as Lord. David was the chief. David was the pinnacle. David was the boss. David was the standard. And so this verse seems way out of order to people. And even in the time of Jesus and the time of the apostles. Now how does this work, the apostles might say. Who is he talking to? Who is he talking about? And the rabbis didn't know. The other ones didn't know. Because when you push them on this, this was one of those verses that preachers like to skip over. This is one of those they would like to get to that next verse instead of talking about that. And here's the reason. Because if you don't understand the whole picture, this is why you are so blessed to be saved in this time, a New Testament believer. <coughs> if you don't have all of that put together from Genesis to Revelation, these kind of things are very, very difficult. The Jews did not really see God in terms of a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, they would probably fight you on that, even though you might point out and say, uh, well, then why in Genesis 1 does God, singular, say, let us, plural, make man in our own image? Well, they don't have a real good answer for that. And there are other references in the Bible where, well, even the word Elohim, the word, one of the words for God, is actually a plural word. And yet the Bible is very clear. Hear, O Israel, in Deuteronomy, the Shema, the Lord our God is one. How do you have one and still have a plural? Well, we understand that. Well, we don't understand it, but we get it because you have one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this first verse, you have God the Father talking to God the Son, and both of them are superior to David. Okay, that makes sense. Until you realize that God the Son, Jesus we call him, is the Messiah who took on human flesh and is actually a descendant of David. And so there's a sense to where the Jews of that day would expect Jesus to pay homage to David because he came before him. And yet we find in this verse that David is actually calling one of his descendants my Lord, my boss, my king, my superior. And boy, that would just blow their minds. 
But because we understand Revelation is progressive from Genesis through Revelation, we get it. That the plan of God was to create humanity and to uh, knowing that they would fall into sin, yet he already had the plan for God the Son to become human, to be of the seed of David, just like the prophecy said, so that he could live a perfect life, die on the cross in our place, and not only die, but be raised from the dead so that he becomes a conqueror of more than land and kingdoms. He conquers death. He conquers hell. And he conquers the grave, something we could never do. And then he becomes what the book of Hebrews says when he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. He becomes the captain of our salvation. The word captain there means a trailblazer. It's like Daniel Boone going through the wilderness and making a way for others to follow. Jesus is the captain who made the way that we could never, never make to get to heaven. And then when he gets to heaven, I can only imagine what the ceremony must have been like. And then the father says to his son, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this was something that when you plug in everything you know from the New Testament and all the prophecies and things, then it's Eureka. It begins to make sense now. We can put it together. But back in the day of David and back before all of that was written and explained and put down, very difficult to piece all of the puzzle pieces together. So with that in mind and being so blessed to be on this side of the cross, being so blessed to have all 66 books of the Bible written down for us, to be so blessed to actually be permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit and then to be blessed that we have preachers and commentators and theologians for 2,000 years that help us with all of these things. Man, we are in a favored position tonight as we look at these verses, verses that puzzled so many people for so many hundreds and even thousands of years. So let's look. 110 verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. There is that day coming. Verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 3. Your people shall be volunteers. In the day of your power. And in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning. The beginning or the birth of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. And the Lord, verse 4. Has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, let's see if we can make a little bit of sense out of what these things are saying. Who is David's Lord? Number one, David's Lord is equal to God. Oh, boy, that's going to fry a lot of minds, isn't it? 
as they think about that. And yet that's exactly what he's saying. And that's the point that Peter would make on the day of Pentecost. That's the point that Jesus would make in front of the Pharisees when they would quote this psalm. Who's he talking about? You, you tell me. This is your scripture that you say you believe. Now you tell me what it means. Well, we have a, an opportunity to do that. Uh, Stephen Lawson says, Jesus Christ, David's Lord, is appointed to sit at God's right hand, the place of highest authority, privilege, and honor. With stature equal to God's, the Son will share in the universal reign of the Father. Christ is presently seated until the future time when he returns to the earth as a conquering king. So that verse, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until your enemies become your footstool is what the Lord Jesus is doing now. Very patient, isn't he? To think that he's been doing that for these over 2,000 years. And we don't know when the Lord is going to return, but we know he is going to return. And we know that we are closer now than we have ever been. But there's coming a day. The idea of a footstool, we think about a footstool as maybe something we stand on to gain a little bit of height or something we rest our feet on, you know, when the uh, chairs are too tall, we get a footstool and put our uh, feet on it or something like that. And yet in the days that this was written, the idea of a footstool or anything to do with the feet had to do with dominance. It had to do with uh, control and being uh, more powerful than someone else. In ancient kings, archaeologists have found pictures where ancient kings, conquering kings, are seen as resting their feet on the backs of the kings that they over, overthrew. And so if you had somebody with their feet on your back or around your head or pushing you down or resting on you, it meant that you were being dominated by them. And so the Lord is saying to the Lord Jesus, go ahead and sit down at my right hand as my equal and sit here until the day of domination comes when your enemies are made your footstool. And that's the day that we await for the conquering king. So the first thing about David's Lord, whoever he's talking about, it's very clear, even without all the information, whoever this is has equality with the true and the living God of Israel. That would be something, of course, that would blow their minds. Number two, think about this. David's Lord is powerful. Now, that's pretty clear. You know, that didn't take a genius to figure that out. He's powerful. But there's something else you don't want to miss here. He's also powerful and Jewish. Did you notice in verse 2? The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of where? Zion. Zion. Now, the rod of your strength. There are two ways we could look at that. One way, uh, you've heard the expression, spare the what and spoil the child? Rod. Rod could be something of punishment. <coughs> authority, correction. With the, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for uh, thy rod and thy staff, 
They comfort me. The idea of the rod. I'm in charge. I'm the shepherd. You can't go there. You can't do that. There's that idea of the rod. It's said of the Messiah when he comes back to set up his kingdom that he will rule with a rod of iron. So we kind of get that. But the rod also can be seen as a scepter. You remember when uh, Esther wanted to go in to see her husband, the king, and she came in without an appointment, without being invited. She had to wait for the scepter to be raised. The scepter. I am the king. You are not. I set my schedule. You don't. I'm the one who determines whether you can come into my presence, not you. You have no right to come into my presence and let it, unless it is granted. So it's the idea that the king is sovereignly in control and you are not. He has the scepter. So it could be a reference to that. Either way, it's a reference to power, sovereignty, ruling, that type of thing. But then it intrigued me when I read that the scripture here says that this is going to be out of Zion. Out of Zion. Now we as New Testament believers, we've heard so much over the years when we talk about Jesus, he's king of kings and what? Lord of lords, right? And we're all, oh, that is so great. That is so wonderful. And we talk about the kingdom of God and we talk about all of the things that we've read in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have a Jewish mindset and a Jewish orientation. In fact, so many times people call the way our culture is set up as the Judeo-Christian ethic, Jewish Christian ethic. They're blended together and they're so similar in so many ways. We're used to thinking like that. We tend to think favorably about the Jews, about Israel, about the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish Messiah, all of those kind of things. We, we think about that. We think about a day when there will be the Prince of Peace that will be ruling and reigning on the earth. And we think about, well, like what the angel told Joseph, and uh, call his name Jesus, for he will sit on the throne of his father David. And we go, yay, David, good guy, king, giant killer, oh, man after God's own heart. Okay, now let's just back up for a second and consider this. Most of the world does not think like you think about the Jew. They've been the most persecuted people, I think you can make the case, on the face of the earth. There's been more than one holocaust. We think about what Hitler did and the killing, the slaughter of six million Jews. But that's not the first time. And uh, probably not the worst time. Uh, there have been people that have tried to wipe them out time after time after time. People in the world don't tend to love Israel or to love the Jews. And uh, when you think about the United Nations, I forgot the statistic I saw. It was extremely high. I think, uh, it, it. don't quote me on this, but... Uh, it was something like the United Nations votes against Israel uh, in excess, I think, of 90% of the time. The nations of the world don't think highly of Israel or of the Jews. And the Jews have been made fun of, they've been mocked, they've been persecuted. And uh, that's been going on for a long, 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 
time. Okay? So that made me think about this. When I think about world empires, where's the Jewish empire? There's not one. In fact, uh, Israel, even today, as uh, great a nation as they are, do you realize that the nation of the modern nation of Israel is about the size of Rhode Island? And yet everybody from the United Nations and the Arab nations and all, give up more land. You've got too much. I mean, how much do you give up when you're the size of Rhode Island so that you can defend yourselves? And it's amazing that Palestinians from Gaza and other places, um, you don't, it doesn't even make the news when they lob rockets over into Israel and people are hurt and sometimes killed. But oh my goodness, let Israel ever defend themselves. And I mean, next thing you know, you've got a Security Council meeting at the UN and world leaders denouncing it, all of that kind of stuff. It's just amazing, isn't it? Where is the Jewish empire? Well, I know from the Bible and even from secular history, when we think back to the time of David and then afterwards, there was a Babylonian empire. We know about Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? And then after that, there was a Persian empire. Persian, Persia is modern-day Iran. That was a big deal. We've read about that in the Bible, and it's also in secular history, of course. Every school child, I think, knows about Alexander. You know his middle and last name? The Great. Yeah, yeah. And uh, everybody knows about that. And boy, what, a, what an impact he had on the world, even for the spread of the gospel. Because when he wanted to make the world a Greek world, he instituted that that Greek language would be the language of commerce. And what is the New Testament written in? Greek. It could spread literally all over the Roman Empire. And then after the Roman Empire, I mean, after the Greek Empire was the Roman Empire, of course. Everybody knows about Julius Caesar and the Ides of March and et tu brute and all of those kind of things. I mean, we know that type of stuff. We know that Rome is burning. And what was Nero doing during that time? Fiddled while Rome burned. He actually, did you know this? He actually blamed it on the Christians. Truth of the matter is, Nero set the fires. And Nero wanted Rome to burn so he could build it the way he wanted it for his glory. But he knew he'd never get away with that. And so he had subversives start the fires and blame it on the Christians. We're so radical and revolutionary, aren't we? And uh, that's what happened. And then he was happy about it, so he fiddled while Rome burned. I mean, we know those kind of things. How many people do you suppose in the United States, a country that would consider itself educated, that could name... Even one king of Israel? Much less two? Do you suppose maybe they would get David? Maybe. Maybe they've been to Sunday school. Maybe they've heard the story. But uh, what about some of the other kings that uh, they hadn't quite heard of? They're not very famous. They're not very well known. Maybe even in church they're not really 
well known or understood because we don't think about Israel when we look at her past as being big, powerful, and dominant on the world scene. And yet the Bible says here that that is going to happen. Well, if it hasn't happened in the past, it must be going to happen someday because the Lord shall send the rod of your strength from where? Out of Zion. So David's Lord is powerful. That's very clear. But he is also more powerful than anything that came out of Babylon or anything that came out of Persia or anything out of Athens or anything out of Rome. This is a big, big deal. And it's going to uh, uh, be something that's unexpected. I don't think the world, I mean, obviously the world doesn't like Israel, but I don't think the world is waiting for a, a great big upsurge of Israelis taking over the world or dominating the world or anything like that. I, I doubt at the White House there's any kind of contingency plan for the uprising of Israel against the U.S. and taking over the U.S. or anything like that. It's just like, oh, yeah, I don't think that's really going to happen. And yet this is what it says and what it is telling us here. And at its height, Israel was not a world empire, even under Solomon. But when Messiah returns, Jerusalem is going to be the seat of power for the entire world. Now that's a big deal to pull something like that off. And only a powerful Lord could do that. Okay, Number three, we find out from reading here that David's Lord is sovereign and he is also equipped. In other words, he's not going to be caught off guard. He's not going to be short on anything that he needs. L listen to these verses. Rule in the midst of your enemies. You know, it's hard enough to rule your friends. It's hard enough to rule people that are kind of behind you. Ask any president of the United States. I mean, can you imagine these uh, men who have served us all these years, how they feel on election night or a month after or whenever they find out now? Can you imagine how it feels to know, man, 70% of the American people are with me? You know, you want to talk about being cool. You want to talk about being popular. You want to talk about having it all. And how long does it take before they find out those numbers don't necessarily reflect everything you think that they mean. They don't mean you can do anything you want and we're all gung-ho about it. You can find out in a hurry how people can turn against you. You say, ah, I'm not sure that happens. Okay, let me give you two words. Most of you are old enough to remember Richard Nixon. He had a historic landslide victory in 1972 and by 1974 he's the first and only president to resign the nation literally turned against him this nation that had overwhelmingly voted for him see it's all fickle the way this world works and the way these things go and so as we think about world powers we think about kings we think about people that can be extremely popular until they do something that people don't like, then they're assassinated or voted out of office or um, maybe there's an invading army that comes in. Any number of things can happen like that. And sometimes a good king 
even a popular king, could be overthrown because he wasn't ready for the next invasion. He never saw it coming. And this is what you find in Old Testament history when the prophets would say, beware the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're coming. And people would look and go, you got to be kidding. Chaldeans? That's a little like saying to the United States of America, warning, warning, you are about to be invaded and conquered by Cuba. That's never going to happen. Those people can't even get their own act together. What are you talking about here? And yet God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and it happened and they became a world empire. And Israel and Judah were not ready for the rise of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, David is saying here, this particular king is going to be able to rule in the midst of his enemies. Not just his friends, not just his supporters, not just the people who like him and uh, think that he's cool. He's going to be able to even rule over his own enemies. That's a strong statement there about the power and the sovereignty of the Lord. In fact, he says in verse 3, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. You know what he's saying there? You'll have more than enough troops. And they're going to all be willing. And they're going to be right behind you. They're going to be believing in the cause. You're not going to have to... You know, my dad uh, served during the Vietnam War. And he, uh, at one point, was put in charge of a stockade annex. <coughs> and this is where, excuse me... This is where they picked up deserters, okay? This is my dad, Mr. Combat Veteran, Marine Corps, now Army Chaplain, conservative, gung-ho, patriotic, do-your-duty person. And they took deserters, and they brought them into his chapel, and he had to deal with them, and he had to counsel them. How well do you think that went? He had no sympathy, no sympathy at all for any of those people. But you know what he did have? He had love for sinners. And he would preach the gospel to them. And there was one year where out of that called PCF prison control facility, an annex of the stockade, where they baptized over 50 deserters. You know what those men did? They were blowing the minds of everybody in Fort Riley, Kansas. Because these men were coming back and saying, I was wrong for what I did and I'll take my punishment. And I would like to get an honorable discharge if possible. And they would submit themselves to the court-martial and the pathway back to being honorable. And people, their minds were blown on all of that. There was a rumor that they were going to shut down Dad's chapel. And uh, Dad didn't want to really go to the CO and bring that up. So his assistant said, oh, I can find out. All the assistants talked to each other. And so he went to see the CO's assistant and said, hey, we've heard that they're going to shut down Chaplain Keenan's chapel over there. And the CO's assistant goes, no, the CO is scared to death to touch it because something's going on over there he can't explain. Okay? Now, this is uh, something that we're talking about 
when you talk about having influence over your enemies, people that should have hated my dad, loved him, listened to him, changed their lives because of what he counseled them to do, and more importantly, came to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Some of those guys even surrendered to the ministry and served the Lord later on. Now, this is what the Lord does. He takes us while we're in the midst of a hostile society. And what does he do? He rules not just his friends, but David said he even rules his enemies. And so much so that there are going to be willing followers in the day of his power. There will be enough. The troops will be there. And they're not going to be reluctant. They're not going to be deserters. They're not going to be people that had to be rounded up and put in a stockade and changed and all of that. These are going to be people that are going to be uh, the ones who say, I'm willing and I'm ready. Let's go. Your people shall be, the King James says, willing. New King James says, volunteers. Same idea in the day of your power. And he says, and how long will this last? In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. You know what that's saying? That the Lord, David's Lord, will never get old. He'll never be without strength. His eyesight will never grow dim. His hearing will never grow dull. His ability to think will never be diminished by Alzheimer's or dementia or anything like that. He'll never be physically frail. In fact, he will be characterized as having what? The dew of your youth. Eternally forever young is the way he's described. Always ready, powerful, and strong with all of the resources that he needs for any given situation. That's David's Lord. And lastly, David's Lord is both a king and a priest. What? How do you do that? Well, how do you get to be a priest? You have to be a descendant in the bloodline of Aaron. Well, there weren't any kings in Israel or Judah that were in that bloodline. So you're either a king or you're a priest. And there were no priests that were in the bloodline of David <coughs> that could take over and be a king. So you're either one or the other. Except David's Lord breaks the mold. David's Lord changes everything because he, he rules. He's mighty. He's equal with God. He's the ultimate Jew ruling out of Jerusalem. And he not only is a king, he is a priest. And the king rules the people of God, provides for the people of God, loves the people of God, protects the people of God. And the priest stands before God on behalf of those that he rules, on behalf of those that he loves, on behalf of those that he protects. Is he after the order of Aaron? No, because the order of Aaron is temporary. Those people are born into the priesthood and then they die. And their children take over and then their children take over. Except today, nobody knows who they are. If you ever run across a Jewish person with the name Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, they are probably related somehow to an Aaronic priest from way back. But there's no way to prove it or anything. Kohen is the Hebrew word for priest, by the way. And so this king, though, says, it's irrelevant. I don't need it. Why? Because I've got a priesthood that lasts forever. And a king 
ship that lasts forever. And the Lord God himself has sworn to it, this kingdom will never fail. He will never grow frail. He will never be put out of office. He will never be deposed. He will never be voted out. None of that is ever going to happen. And so when you look at this David's Lord, I don't know who he is, let's say. Let's say we live back in the days of David and we're reading this. And we look at that and go, who do you suppose he's talking about? Do you suppose they're alive now? Well, what in the world could this be? I don't know. But here's what I do understand. Even from this, all of those many, many years ago. Here's the one thing we do know. Whoever he is, he's God in human flesh. Whoever he is, he's powerful and Jewish and he's going to do something with a small, obscure nation and race of people that is going to blow the world's mind because Jerusalem will be the capital and the Jews and a Jewish king will rule the world. We may not know a whole lot, but we know this, that whenever the time comes for him to conquer and to rule and reign, he will never be without wisdom. He will never be without munitions. He will never be without people because even his people will be willing in the day of his power. Long live King Jesus. And here we go, off to battle, to fight the war and to conquer in the name of our King. And we know that our king, not only do we stand before him, but he stands before God himself on behalf of us. And all of this is what we find written about in the book of Hebrews, which is why the word better is used so often there. Whatever you can come up with in an earthly sense, there's something better, far better. And that is what God has done, who Jesus is, and the covenant that we have in him that I believe that this psalm is making reference to the day after the rapture, after the tribulation, when the Lord comes back and brings us with him to conquer the world and to rule the world in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Now maybe we <coughs> excuse me, can't put everything together, but we know enough to know that this person is unique supernatural in fact it's even more than that this lord david speaks of is god himself coming to earth to rule and to reign and to conquer this is an amazing thing and so many people say ah the old testament it doesn't really matter seriously it gives all kinds of credibility to the prophecies of the new testament because they're not just something that the early church made up. They're something that the Holy Spirit inspired even under the old covenant so that we can look at it and say, wow, look how all of this fits together. This book is the Bible. This book is true. This book is infallible, inerrant, eternal, and all-sufficient. And you can indeed trust it because it has God for its author, a God who cannot fail and a God who cannot lie. Trust Him. Rest in Him in all every situation that you find yourself in life. Amen? Father, we come to you tonight because we think about how
easy it is for people to dismiss Old Testament passages like this, and yet they're so rich in what they reveal. No wonder the psalmist said, Open my eyes, that I may see wonderful things in your law. And we think the law is boring. We think the law is outmoded. We think the law is irrelevant to our lives. Oh, Father, that you would forgive us for that and enrich our lives by causing us to love your word, all of it, the Old Testament as well as the New. And while we're thankful so much for the New and all that it reveals, never let us just overlook or think less of the Old Testament. And thank you for all of these prophecies that point to Jesus Christ <coughs> and only Jesus Christ. And for that we say thank you and come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.